Good morning. If you'll open your Bibles and turn with me, we're in Mark chapter 12, and we're finishing up the 12th chapter today, speeding up a little bit. Up until this point in Mark chapter 12, Mark has, or really Jesus, has been attacked. Ever since he got into Jerusalem, the religious leaders have been thought about thinking about not if they should kill Jesus, but how. And they've tried a political trap to get him to say something wrong, maybe get the government involved. They tried a theological conundrum that they knew no one could answer, but as it turns out, Jesus can. He seems to have that capability of doing that with people. He even answered an orthodox question showing that he taught in line with what the Bible taught. And Jesus is actually going to use that teaching of what the greatest commandment is to unveil and reveal, reveal the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Let's read, starting in verse 35, and I'll be reading through verse 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feast, who devour, wid who devour widows' houses for a pretense, making long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. This is God's holy, inerrant word. May God's blessing be upon it. You know, hypocrisy, and it might be surprising to you that hypocrisy in religion is nothing new. It's always been a perpetual problem, not just in the church, but actually every religion of every single stripe has hypocrites. They have people 
who wants other people's esteem, want other people to look at them, yet don't really believe the stuff that they're teaching. Or maybe they believe the stuff they're teaching, but it's not enough to actually affect their lives. They would rather use whatever respect, whatever prestige they have, to enrich themselves. To live a life of pleasure while also having the added benefit of other people thinking they're living a life of self-sacrifice. And hypocrisy is not just a problem of church leadership. It's a problem of every church member. Or it can be a problem in the church membership. How many times have you heard atheists tell you, or people who just don't long, any longer go to church, say, I don't go to church anymore because the church is filled with hypocrites. The reality is, is that even though I've, I've interacted with some of those people, and that might not be the actual take on it, there's a lot of truth in it, isn't there? If you've been in church long enough, you know what I'm talking about. There are pretenders. There are people who, at a surface level, seem like they have everything put together. But everything that they're putting out is just an outward projection. It's a facade. It's like the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the door. I think it was a door, right? A curtain. Thank you. I don't know too much about pop culture. It's a, it's a problem I have. The guy behind the curtain is not... As soon as you break through that curtain, you see reality. And reality is not matching up with what they're projecting. And the thing is, it's, it's more than just a problem in the church. It's something God hates. It's something that God uses very, very strong language against. It's a problem that God determined ever since... Well, he said it in Ezekiel chapter 34. He said that Israel had a problem with false shepherds who were using their position not to serve people, but to serve themselves. And he said that he was going to send a good shepherd. A shepherd who would get rid of all the other shepherds, these false shepherds, and give them one who would lead them in spirit and in truth. Haven't we seen that in the life of Jesus? You know, a shepherd does not just lead sheep. He doesn't just have a staff. A shepherd also has a rod. Something to beat back the wolves. And if you think that this sounded rough, verses 38 through 43, verses against these Pharisees condemning them, read Matthew 23 sometime where he pronounces seven woes upon the Pharisees for all they've done. Jesus reserves his absolute harshest language against the wolves. This is when he picks up the club. And in this, Jesus is going to be unlifting this mask or pulling back the curtain to see behind, to see what's really going on. And he does it in three ways. Really, because I like three. It seems to be able to track. Well, let's look at this first way that Jesus unveils or unmasks their hypocrisy. The first way he does is he shows them that they are ignorant. They've asked Jesus so many different questions, and he's been able to answer them all. 
But right now, Jesus has a question of his own to pose to them. It's a question that's related to the identity of himself. He says, how can the scribes say, verse 35, that the Christ is the son of David? This is true. Jesus isn't bringing this up because Jesus is claiming somehow that he's not the son of David. This is an obvious fact. 2 Samuel 15, God made a promise to David saying that on your, that your descendants will be an eternal throne that's being established. That God would be ensured that a son of David would always sit on the throne. And everyone looked forward to the fact that God was going to keep his promise with this by having an eternal king, an eternal kingdom set up. But what's the nature of this person? Is it just an innate, a uh, human kingdom, a merely human man who would just be victorious, take the people out of the land, establish a kingdom, but the kingdom would last forever? Or did the Bible actually reveal something deeper about the character of that king? And he just quotes the Bible. And notice something in verse 36. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Let's not pass over this real quick. How does Jesus unveil hypocrites? How does he unmask them? He explains the scriptures. You see, the first easy way, if you want to unmask a hypocrite, is explain the scriptures. False shepherds trying to point you in the wrong direction, go to the Bible. See what it says. The Bible will not lead you astray, though men might twist it and lead you astray. And Jesus goes to the Bible for a very important reason. Not because it's David's words, over, even though Psalm 110 was David's words. He goes to David's words because when David wrote that psalm, and this is true of every word that's in your Bible from Old to New Testament, he goes to it because it has in it the authority of God. I don't know exactly how it works out, but that the words of David, through the experience of David, can also be the very words of God. But 2 Peter chapter 1 gives us a start to that, saying that no prophecy has ever been given that was just some, someone's imagination. But they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the very words that we have. That's why we go to the Bible. We go to it because we know it's the word of God. And we have God's word on it. And he presents them with a conundrum really of his own. David says, the Lord said to my Lord. And the full significance of this being, after the quote, in verse 37, he says, David calls him Lord. So then how can he be a son? You know, it's one thing you never say to your child. You never call them sir, do you? You don't look at your children and say, sir, give those, those titles. Maybe, maybe some of you do. That's what I'm hearing some whispering. You don't give them these honorific titles. And even if you did, you know what you would never call them? 
You know what David would never be able to call anyone? Lord. Who is David? There's a sense in which we could sort of conceivably think of some king referring to another king as a greater king. America could do that, right? To some other king on earth, King Jesus, who reigns in the heavens. Other kings, maybe not an American king, could say, or a president, could say, there's no greater king than me on earth. And you'd be accurate in that. You see, King David, with the throne that God gave him, there was no other king who was greater than David. He was given, and through him was mediated, the kingdom of God on earth. So who is David acknowledging? Well, we're not going to go into it today, but we see that this king is in the order of Melchizedek. We see that he is the eternal throne that is going to be established. That in this person, even in this very first verse, we see that claiming that Jesus, or claiming really for them, that the Messiah would be simply a man could not account for all the biblical data it could not account to say that jesus would be just a mere man would not account for david referring to someone as greater king than himself and if we even think about the way the covenants work in the old testament we talk about or really in the old testament they constantly refer to the god of their fathers The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why? Because the promises were made to those men. That they are greater than us. That we look back. And that being grafted into the family of Abraham means we have an Abrahamic-like faith. But there's a somewhat an acknowledgement throughout the Old Testament of looking back to our fathers as being greater than us. Higher in station and statute. And Jesus leaves it as a hanging question for them. But this is something that, for us who have read the book of Mark, should have gotten at first glance. Reading Mark, we've seen that he's already referred to the Messiah. Jesus is referred to himself as the exalted one, the angelic figure, the angelic-like figure from Daniel chapter 7. That he's the suffering servant who's Government would rest upon his shoulders, who would be called Mighty God and Wonderful Counselor, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. From the very outset of the gospel, we see that Jesus is no mere man. And he's also above any heavenly being. He's not simply some angel. Or, quoting the same text, Psalm 110, Hebrews chapter 1 says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Quoting Psalm 2, and then quoting Psalm 110, saying that he has set him, Jesus, on the throne, and he is going to reign there until everyone is brought to subjection under his feet. To which of the angels did God ever say that to? Jesus in his ministry has been walking around, exercising divine prerogatives, pronouncing forgiveness of sins, rebuking and walking on water, 
commanding healings rather than requesting them? It's no small wonder that demons who were subjugated to him cried out and their recognition to him as the son of God meant so much more than just that he was some son of David. There's something about Jesus's presence with them that shows himself that he being with them is somehow the mysterious presence of God among them. They don't know how it all works. And honestly, we don't know exactly how it all works. But Jesus is greater than any man and he's greater than any angel. And they are wrong about him. And you know what? Matthew includes their answer, but Mark leaves it out because their answer doesn't matter. Their answer is just to fumble the question. Hypocrisy is first unveiled or unmasked first here by showing their ignorance of something fundamental as what their future hope was. They had no idea who Jesus was. And their ignorance is being unmasked here. And they did not know who Jesus was because their expectations that he was going to be just some mere human king was totally off. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's teaching in the temple, we're told in verse 35. And now that they've not answered his question, he has another opportunity to teach the crowds in the temple. And he turns to the crowds and he says, beware of the scribes. Watch out for these hypocrites who don't know what they're talking about. What is he amassing here? He's unmasking something that they have tried to hide for so long. He's unmasking their selfishness, their self-centeredness. The second thing Jesus unmasks of these Pharisees is the fall of the mask of their self-centeredness. They like to walk around in long robes, being greeted in the marketplaces. What are they about? They love their reputation. They love people's applause. They love being respected. They love being distinguished. They love people's respect. What do they love it more than? Than God's approval. Than God's respect. They did not love God. What they truly loved was themselves. And they used their positions, as all false teachers do, to gain for themselves, to enrich themselves, to serve themselves. And it goes, it gets worse than this. They want to have the best seats at the synagogues, the, be- the places of honor at the feast. What they wanted was all eyes on them to see how pious they were. And they would go so far, in verse 40, who devour widows' houses. This is where we can see that saying that I read the Bible literally doesn't hold water. Is Jesus saying that they eat widows' houses? No. He's talking about eating their source of income. Robbing them. 
taking away from them. You see, a widow, maybe not in our society as much, but still today somewhat, widows depended upon their husbands for their income, depended upon their husband for their riches. When their husband died, they were left with whatever their husband left them. They weren't used to making the financial decisions, trying to know where to spend the money and how to spend it and how to be wise with it. And the Pharisees knew this. And they took advantage of it. Saying even, under the pretense of making long prayers, they did this. You can envision what Jesus is painting, this picture of having this really pious man in long robes, respected, respected by the community, coming to this poor woman's house, or rather this poor in the sense of lacking her husband, but rich woman probably, coming over to her house, showing his piety by praying a really long time, and convincing her to give more to the church, which, you know, he might skip a little off the top of that. There's a reason why Jesus has targeted this theme about the love of money. It's not just a love of respect, love of esteem. It's also a love of money that they have. Luke 16, verse 14 says, you cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They laughed at him. And he said to them, you are, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Isn't this true of all false teachers? False teachers, we, we tend to think about hypocrisy in terms of ignorance. But the reality is, especially in leadership, don't give leaders the benefit of the doubt. It's one thing to be a member of a cult and be deceived and be led astray. It's another thing to be the leader of those who are leading other people astray. If anyone knows the teaching, it's the leaders. If anyone knows what they're doing, it's the leadership. There are cases in which maybe we could give people the benefit of the doubt. But you know what? Jesus actually doesn't do that. Jesus instead mocks them. Jesus ridicules them. Do you know what it would have been like? Imagine you had some secret sin. We're standing in front of everyone, and you thought no one knew about it, and then Jesus exposed it in front of everyone to be laughed at, and the people heard him gladly. You could probably see why. You know, hypocrites might think that they're getting away with what they're doing, but sometimes we see it, don't we? We see it through that. We see behind the curtain. But you know what the difference between those people and Jesus is? Jesus had the boldness to confront them. He had the moral courage to stand up to them and show and expose their sin to everyone. Jesus did the thing here, what is the result of actually all biblical exposition. When you show what the Bible teaches and explain what the Word of God says, 
and has the effect of revealing error, of revealing what's wrong, revealing hypocrisy. You know, this was said also, uh, this is not the only time that this has happened. I thought it interesting, I was reading Calvin, and he applied this to his own situation. And he talks about how the fact that there are people out in the world, when he talks publicly about Roman Catholic priests teaching wrongly, he points out the fact that there are people who say that they're displeased with the harshness and severity which they speak about false teachers, about people who are leading them astray. And Calvin points out that what Jesus is doing here is not for the point of just publicly shaming false teachers. His point in doing this, Jesus in taking off the mask, is for the people who are listening. The reason why we unveil false teachers and point them out and say that they are false, why we point to the Benny Hens of the world, the Joel Osteens of the world, and say that that person is a false teacher and point out their list of errors and their list of grievances is not so that we can shame them, even though it does that. We do it because we love people. We love those who are being led astray. We take out the club and we do beat the wolf, but we beat the wolf not just to abuse a wolf, but to beat them away from eating and consuming the sheep. And he said they're displeased with the hardness and severity of us towards the wolves. These wolves, which are constantly with mouth open, tearing and devouring the sheep. Yet they see the poor sheep being deceived by a vain disguise really throwing themselves into the jaws of these wolves. Unless a pastor who desires to save them and endeavors to rescue them from destruction and drive them away with a loud voice, which, by the way, that's the only tool of a pastor. The only call by God is my loud voice. And I, do, I think I have a pretty loud voice. I think so. He said, we must therefore follow the design of Christ by copying out of his example in the severe threatenings against wicked despisers and boldly exclaiming against them that those who are capable of being cured may be led by the fear of destruction to withdraw from them. We beat out the wolf so that they don't get eaten. Isn't that what love is? Love does not tolerate evil. Love does not hear someone say, oh, yes, I, I listen. I think Joel Osteen's a great teacher. I'm going to his church. Love doesn't just say nothing about it. You know what says nothing about it? A person who's after their own comfort. A person who doesn't really want to get into the conflict and want to, you know, there's going to be a yelling match or something. I don't want to get involved in that. True love's loves people enough to warn them. True love speaks harsh realities because that's what's required of us to love people. The wolves are not just going to listen and respond to our quiet, polite askings, not giving them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, you're in the sheep cave. You must have accidentally slipped in here. I'll just show you the cave and we'll be right along. No, we do something about it. 
We point out their evil when we go after the wolves. This self-centeredness that's being shown and evidenced by the false teachers, the self-centeredness shows that Jesus, what he had just taught as the greatest command, which is to love God and love neighbor, are the very things they are not doing. They love not God. They pray long for who? Themselves. Long prayers are fine. But long prayers cannot cover up your sin. Cannot mask your lack of love for God. And you know what? Just because you pray long prayers, that means, doesn't mean you necessarily love God. It's not found in your length of prayers. It's who you're turning to in prayer. The ministry is one of service. A minister of the gospel, that name minister, means servant. But what are they using their task to? Not to love God and love neighbor. They're using their riches. and They're using their power, their prestige to enrich themselves. And what we have, lastly, is this peak behind the mask. Getting a glimpse. Because right now, Jesus is just pointing out what they're doing and exposing them. The Pharisees know it's true. But how do you? What's the evidence of their hypocrisy? Well, that's what we get. We get a peak of the mask, behind the mask, that we get to see their appalling, the appalling evidence. Look at verse 38, or rather, verse 41. Right after he condemns them, he says he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting in money into the offering box. And he sees rich people putting in large sums, and he sees a what? A poor widow. And the poor widow put in two small coins, and Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says that this widow gave more than the rest of them because, verse 44, she gave out of her poverty and has put in it everything she had, all that she had to live on. We were just told what Pharisees do. They devour widows' houses. And what does Jesus pull aside and show the disciples? Nothing less than this widow being robbed of all that she had, putting in every last penny. I had to look for a little while here. Uh, every commentary I read talked about this poor widow and her giving, her heart. And it took me a while to even be able to see the, the, the high example that he's holding in this woman because it's surrounded by a text of condemnation the Pharisees. He's been having and coming into conflict with them ever since the beginning of chapter 12, and he's about to pronounce the destruction of the temple in chapter 13. But there is a positive example here, and it comes from if we actually stop and pause to see what she's doing. It's right thing, though, to pause and say that this appalling evidence should strike us. 
Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. We know someone who might have fit that category. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received your reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's the key. You see, at the synagogues, in the court of the Gentiles, or really the court of women, they had created in the temple courts an extra court where no women could come in. That there's a limit, a boundary, which women could not get closer, a limit which then a little bit closer, which Gentiles could not get closer to the temple. By the way, that court of the women that they are, he's currently sitting in, not something that Solomon was told to build. There was a distinction of this culture that was reflected in their practices. But in this temple of the Gentile, or temple of the women, sorry, temple, court of the women, outside the temple, there was these trumpet-shaped offering boxes that when you put your coins in there, which was their form of currency, would make a lot of noise. You couldn't actually see, like we have a little red box in the back that you can, as you're coming in, you secretly give to the church. It's not paraded before us. But they had the exact opposite thing. We had here the population of Jerusalem going up from about 50,000. Now during Passover, when this is going on, it's about 200,000 pilgrims. A lot of them very rich people who are able to make the trek able to buy the best sheep, able to buy the best lambs, and they'd come in and they'd put in large sums. And even though you couldn't see what they were giving, everyone could hear it. Clanging off the metal box, shaped like a trumpet. Throwing in large cloud, uh, throwing in their large amount of money, everyone would rejoice and say, wow, that guy, look how much he's giving. In the words of Chapter 6, they put a trumpet before them and they're giving to the needy. Because that's what this was for. This offering box was for the needy. But we see this poor woman who put in small, two small copper coins. Two things about this is a lepta, and a lepta is worth about 164th of a day's labor. So, in other words, think about six minutes. How much would you get paid for working six minutes? That's how much each of these coins were worth. She only had these two coins to her name. And Jesus knows this. And she comes in and doesn't just give one. She doesn't just give half of her money. She gives all of it. And no one would have noticed. It would have just clinked. It would have been a small little crinkle after the large sums that were just put in that everyone heard knocking against the brass. You know what she did? She gave in secret. She gave not thinking anyone paid attention to her. And you know what? 
she probably didn't even know that Jesus was paying attention to her. Because out on the opposite side, he pulls not to her, but he pulls his disciples to him. And he explains to them, look at this woman. She gave all that she had. Subtle rebuke against the Pharisees, but also a condom, uh, a commend, commending, I can't get the word out, commending this woman for giving all that she had. She gave in secret, and her Father in heaven would reward her. Now, this is not a stride or an, just as an FYI, if you are in need, I don't want you giving all your money to the church. Provide for your family first. Provide for their needs. Only a wolf will come and ask you for your money when you are poor. You know, the reality is, is God does not need your money. He requires no benefactor to help him establish his kingdom. And nothing you can add will add to his riches. He owns the entire universe. And he can employ it to accomplish his own ends. And by the way, he owns your money too. What did this giving away her whole money show? It showed that her trust was in God to provide for all her needs. You know what? God takes care of the sparrows. He can surely take care of you. There is something to commend in this woman, and yet something to be appalled by in a system and people who take advantage of such needy women. James chapter 1, verse 27 says that true religion... That true religion is one that cares for the widows and the orphans. That's what we are to do. That's what we're to actually use the funds and the needs of the church. That we're rather to fund the needs of the church. And God chooses whatever, can do whatever he wants with our gifts. You know what Jesus used her small gift for? You know, if we're walking around, we see a penny on the road, we're probably not even going to bend down to pick it up. But you know what God is able to do with a penny? God is able to have a lesson for his disciples about what true sacrificial giving is. But true love for God looks like what it looks like if you want to be rewarded by your Father in heaven. It looks like self-sacrifice. It looks like trust in God to provide for you tomorrow. Behind the mask is a pretty gross look, and things are about to get a lot more appalling as we get into chapter 13 to see what kind of rebuke, what kind of severity is going to be left on these men who did these things. It's going to be the destruction of the temple and something truly devastating. It's at this point, I think, we see in this woman, this woman who's abused, that we can think about hypocrisy. And judge, we need to be have wisdom in how we're going to, when we need to pick out the cloth. Galatians, that book, you see that the club is used against the teachers. Those who are leading people astray for the sake of the sheep. 
But in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, those who are entangled in sin, those ones we give grace. That's when we take out the staff to lead the sheep by cool waters. We warn them about the we warn them about the dangers of sin. We get them out of the traps. But we need to be very clear about when the clubs need to come out. We get the clubs out because there's poor widows like this who are suffering, who are being abused. That's probably true of some of you in this room. You probably had experience of church where you saw abuse, where you saw hypocrisy. Praise God that he used that not to turn you away from him, but to draw you closer to him. Because there's only one shepherd who we are told to trust. There's only one shepherd whose word we are to bow down to. There's only one shepherd who promises us eternal life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man who accomplished our redemption. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We are so thankful that you show us in your word that even the feeble efforts of your people, of weak, of poor and needy people who seek to, out of their heart, honor their Savior, honor their God, that all those works will be commended on the day of judgment. And Lord, help us to have a look of pity on those who are deceived. And yes, a look of pity on those who are wolves trying to eat the sheep. But let us not have a pity that leads us to inaction. Let us not have a pity that doesn't get us involved and maybe even an assault against these people with our words. And may we not forget that there's a day of judgment coming in which the actions, even the splendid actions, the rich actions of unbelievers will be exposed. And may we, Lord, live a life of self-sacrifice, not a life that seeks to enrich ourselves, not want to bolster our egos in front of people. And Lord, may you protect us against these bad sheep shepherds. Lord, protect my own heart that I would not want to be looked at for respect, to gain people's honor. Protect me, Lord, to be a good shepherd. Just a good shepherd that points to the good shepherd. Protect my heart that all my service would be sincere to serve the sheep of Jesus Christ and not manipulate them to get them to stroke my ego or to just enrich our church. Lord, and may you help us all to be stewards of your money, that we would use it, knowing that you are even able to use our good, our small gifts to very great purposes in the kingdom of God. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we'll continue our worship by singing God's praises.